I think it takes a while for maybe some of us to understand is that there's only one you. See, I can't be you because you're already taken. You can't be me because I'm already taken. You is enough. Understanding that you are enough and understanding that you bring something unique that no one else does will allow you to hold on to that authenticity and really see it as a value and not see it as something that's a detriment. Welcome to Hanakuma's Good Trouble, where we celebrate those who have the courage to disrupt the norm. I'm Nick Kyrgios, professional tennis player and your host. In each episode, we'll sit down with game changers who aren't afraid to rock the boat. We'll dig into their stories and the waves they've made in their worlds for the better. We are all familiar with the saying, the pen is mightier than the sword. But in the case of today's guest, Jamel Hill, the phrase has literally come to life. Armed with an arsenal of words, she has navigated the world of journalism, from general assignment reporter to live in our homes on the world's biggest sports network, ESPN Sports Center. Her text slaps so hard, she's only written for The Atlantic and crafted Emmy Award-winning material. It's earned her the 2018 National Association of Black Journalists Journalist of the Year Award. She's even caught the attention of the President of the United States. To call her Unbothered, the name of her podcast, is putting it lightly, and it's the same spirit she's been able to continue her climb uphill, the title of her recently published memoirs. What does good trouble mean to you? Um, for me, good trouble is disruption. And a lot of people, when they think about journalism, I don't think they necessarily think about it in disruptive terms. Mm. Of course, they think about us interviewing people, asking questions, being at press conferences, those kind of things. Yep. But the entire point of journalism is a phrase that they used to say a lot when I was in journalism school at Michigan State, which is your job is to comfort the afflicted mm -hmm. and afflict the comfortable. And so our entire presence is supposed to disrupt the chain of power. We're here to hold the people in power who make the decisions accountable. So for me, that is good trouble. What drew you to journalism and more specifically like sports in general? Were you a sports fan growing up? I was a huge sports fan. I was the neighborhood tomboy for sure. I grew up playing sports, watching sports. People ask me, when did you fall in love with sports? I'm like, I don't know. It was so natural. Like I loved it from the beginning. Nobody had to convince me. Mm -hmm. Nobody had to sit down with me. I was one of those kids who really immerse themselves. Uh, baseball was my first love. So yeah. I knew every player, all the teams. During that time, you actually had to read the newspaper to follow your favorite team. So that actually introduced me to journalism, is having to read the sports pages. I saw from reading the sports pages that people actually make a living talking and writing about sports. And I was one of those weirdos who <laughs> knew in high school that I wanted to do this. So I started pursuing a journalism career when I was in 10th grade. I wrote for my high school newspaper. It, it is ridiculous, and I, I feel bad when younger journalists and kids ask me about, you know, being a journalist mm. or trying to find their way. I was like, I'm probably not the person to ask because I knew and locked in so early, and it allowed me to get such a career head start. I just so happened to find journalism, not just stick with it, but I fell in love with it and was obsessed with it to such a degree. It was always writing. That was my love, reading and writing. I guess I've had my war with journalists and the <laughs> yes. media and I've always spoke my mind in press conferences and I guess where does that confidence come from with you? Has it always been something you've been brought up with or how did that come about? I come from a long line of family members who spoke their mind and I guess some of it was innate, some of it was osmosis. 
And just with simple things, my family, we used to debate a lot. Well, I shouldn't say we, because I was a kid, so I'm just watching the debate yep. play out. They debated, my grandmother, my uncles, my mother debated about everything. And so I learned early on that having an opinion, a strong opinion, and being able to support and back up that opinion was very central to not just communication, but just in terms of changing the world. And so for me, it just came naturally. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even something that I was aware was some kind of superpower to other people. You just speak your mind. I'm mm. like, I never looked at it that way. I just like, oh, I have something to say. I'm going to say it. I guess it's a combination of innate and osmosis. Were you ever like media trained at any point in your career? Because like I got taught media training early in my career and it obviously didn't work. Did you ever have that training? Did anyone like coach you or did you just go in there feeling com confident? So believe it or not, I never got into this business ever with the idea of being on camera, ever. Yep. I came up during a different time and I wanted to be a print journalist. Okay. I didn't want anything to do with television. And during that time, there was a very clear delineation between print journalists and broadcast journalists. And most of us who are on the print side did not want to do broadcasters. Mm -hmm. It was like, we were two gangs. It was like Crips and Bloods. Yeah. No, we don't want anything to do with that. The real journalists write. They're not on TV. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn everything on the fly. I had to, like being out front and presenting the story, sometimes being the story, was totally new to me. So I learned by just sitting down with a lot of great athletes uh, mm -hmm. over the course of my career, understanding the things that worked, understanding yep. the things that didn't work. And it is, in many ways, very akin to what you're doing now. It's like mm -hmm. being on this side, you yep. know what it's like. The questions that you want to ask somebody, what you find to be interesting and compelling. And so being on this side, I know from talking to people like you, how what compels people when you speak about your experiences and being candid mm -hmm. and authentic and how that tends to draw people more so than canned answers yes, and those kinds of things. And as a fellow host, I'm usually in that seat trying to answer questions. I need some tips because I know that I've got plenty of room for improvement. <laughs> Am I doing all right? Yeah, you, first of all, I would not have guessed that this is a tangent career move. See, I'm fun. not just saying that. I was like, we yeah. might have a little future here. Um, <laughs> what can I say? Listen, you know, I think, um, one, you frame this as a conversation. The more you frame it as a conversation and less like a formal interview, mm -hmm. the better it will be. People appreciate real, yep. a thousand percent. They know when somebody's bullshitting. So what I often say to athletes is that you're better off really being yourself because then people can't really take issue with it. So with all these accolades, journalists of the year, all of these amazing things you've achieved, how do you maintain your edge and focus? People who are highly successful, um, you never feel like you've made it. You never feel yeah. like you, I, I don't- Big imposter syndrome, yeah. Same, I have big yeah. imposter syndrome. I, I don't sit around polishing off my Emmy. I'm on to like, what am I doing in 2024? It is important that we stop at some point and reflect. And reflect. Exactly, stop, reflect, give yourself credit. I'm terrible at two things, <laughs> giving myself credit and accepting compliments. I'm awful at those. And I'm trying to get to a place where I'm so much better at them because it really is a blessed position to be in that you can work hard and people enjoy your work. You get celebrated for your work. Mm. The majority of people in this world don't get that. And so I don't want to take that for granted, but I also have ambitions that are higher. The legacy I want to leave is not one of a bunch of awards or money or any of those things. It is a legacy of service. I want to know that this profession is in a better situation, a better place than when I got into it. That matters more to me than 
anything I could win or collect for personal accolades. You know, is there any particular time when you started writing and you were like, okay, that's me, the first time you were heard, <laughs> was there one particular moment that stands out? For me, like one match where it happened and the world knew it was me. Mm -hmm. I was an 18, 19 year old kid, still in school, just like a family, had my friends, and then I beat Rafa Nadal, number one in the world, in the middle of Wimbledon, and then my life changed forever. Because there was people camping outside my house for 14 days straight. <laughs> I was 19, I was like, what the hell is this? Um, so is there one moment for you where you were just like, oh, that's me and people know that I'm like a writer. I, I think I felt that probably when I was about 17 and I was very fortunate because I got to work for the professional paper in Detroit when I was in high school. Mm. I wrote an essay about a kid at my high school to understand the racial dynamics of Detroit. Detroit at the time was about probably about 80% black. My high school was pretty much all black and he was the only white kid that went to the school. The level of trauma that he faced, because kids are cruel. He was picked on and bullied and beaten up quite a bit. And I wrote this entire essay about how, while I understood the level of trauma that most black people in America had faced, we can never take on the traits of the people who have oppressed us and use those and weaponize those against other people. It's never gonna work. And I wrote this whole very personal essay and the response to it was amazing. It really taught me the power of writing with authenticity and honesty and that people respect that. And so that's when I felt like I was a writer. And little did I know then like how much writing that way and writing about race at 17 years yeah. old would play out later in, in my career because I didn't even think about it in those terms. I was like, I know this kid in my high school, he's getting bullied and I need to write about this. And that was really the mission. Earlier in your career, you were the only black female columnist at the Daily Newspaper in North America. What sort of pride and responsibility did that carry? Because I feel like in the tennis world, there's not many colored athletes. In America, there's been people pulling over in their cars to get out like, oh, thanks yeah. for what you got. And so you know, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. It is a lot of responsibility, but frankly, that statistic, being the only black female sports columnist at a Daily Newspaper in North America is embarrassing. I believe in my ability. Yep. I know I can write. I'm good. I ain't that damn good. Well, yep. I need to be the only one who's representing people who look like me. It unfortunately reiterated just how many strides and just how much progress still needed to be made mm -hmm. in the profession. I realized the responsibility of me being in that seat and hopefully encouraging other women to pursue the career, other black people, period. Representation matters so much in media. Mm. You can tell me this, as an athlete, as someone of color, when you look out in the press yeah. conference and no one in that room looks like you, you're like, what is going on here? Yeah. Right? And so if we're going to be covering the stories, the lives, creating the narratives of athletes of color, they should be represented in the people doing that. Definitely. Because there's a lot of people who can't understand your perspective, who don't know what it's like for you to carry that responsibility of being an athlete of color who mm. has a lot of expectations and responsibilities or even how they write and talk about you is different, right? Now, now that you're <laughs> saying this, I look back at all the press conferences that I've done. I reckon probably underneath 5% of people Correct. have been colored that are actually asking me these questions. And that's why when I see these articles, I'm like, that's not how I said things or that's right. not how I meant it. And it's or even just how they characterize you, yeah. right? Frankly, sometimes their view of people of color is very limited and very narrow. Mm. Um, certainly you, Serena, Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka, you all have experienced this in your careers. I couldn't wave a banner behind being the only one. And I don't want to be the only one. It, I know it should be a lot more of us. So it was one of those statistics I looked at in the negative. And you were just disappointed. Very disappointed.
So the greatest writers and I guess commentators like yourself have their own voice. And is there anyone over time that's helped you become who you are? Did you look up to anyone, any other writers? Oh, it was a ton. I mean, both of those who were journalists and those who were outside of journalists. Mm -hmm. Like I look at somebody like Michael Wilbon, who hosted Pardon the Interruption on ESPN, arguably the most successful debate show ever yep. that has been on television. Yep. And when I first was introduced to Michael Wilbon, he was just a columnist at the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. and following his career, that was the person whose career I wanted to most model uh, myself afterwards because I thought he was an excellent columnist, really wrote with authority. I could cover up Michael Wilbon's byline and know that he wrote it. I love writers who were like that. So it was so many different influences from him to columnist Donna Britt. They say imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And while I wouldn't advise necessarily imitating a writer, but I think you can learn so much from how they use their voice and how they put together sound arguments and columns that it really impacted me as a writer. And of course, there are plenty of fiction writers that I loved from James Baldwin to Maya Angelou. And so those were also equally good influences on me as well. My tennis journey is a bit different to yours. You know, I wasn't so set in stone. Like you obviously fell in love with writing very early on. You knew that was your calling and you were super talented with it. But, you know, I hated tennis. You know, I, I grew up, I was very fat, overweight as a kid. And my mum saw that and she was like, oh, you need to like be a bit active. I was a bit just at home, homebody. And then I just kind of dragged me down to the tennis courts and, and got me into the tennis. And I hated, I was crying. I remember it's it traumatizing to this day, to be honest. <laughs> wow. And I loved basketball. I loved the culture. I used to sit there watching VCR tapes and, and CDs of all these Vince Carter like dunks. And I just loved everything about basketball with the camaraderie, the teamwork. Speaking to you and how passionate you are about writing and following what you love to do is like, for me, I want to go back and turn the clock back and just be like, follow that NBA dream. If you hated it early on, yep. what was it that made you go back? I guess my parents pushed me towards that dream of tennis. They loved the sport. And in, in Australia, tennis is huge. It's one of our biggest sports there. And I know it's not the same as big as in, in America, but my family didn't have much growing up and they saw that I was talented and they kind of saw that, I guess, as a way out to having a, a better life. So. Yeah, but it, it's one of those things where there's lessons in that, right? There's lessons in the fact that like maybe something that while you may have displaced a dream, so to speak, you were able to find something else that you were really passionate about. And a lot of people don't have the courage to do that. People get locked in on things and when that doesn't work out, it discourages them to the point where they don't want to do anything else. And you, whether pushed or however it yeah. worked out, it was clear this was maybe yeah. where you were destined to Definitely. be. Definitely. I wouldn't be here right now. Might not and be right. The, the platform I've been given is, is amazing. And yeah, it's been a great journey, that's mm -hmm. for sure. So you've done ESPN, His and Hers, the Sports Center, pretty much the biggest sports shows in the world. How did that experience influence you while you were working there? And how's that different now? Much like you and your accidental gravitation toward tennis. I had a very accidental, unlikely, defiant journey into television. It was something I did not want to do. When I first started at ESPN in 2006, they hired me as a writer to write for ESPN.com. They did not hire me to do television. And at the time, it was my manager's idea mm. to just have 20 television appearances thrown into my contract. And I told him that was ridiculous. I was like, I don't want to be on TV. Nobody's going to put me on their television. Who cares? And I think, you know, I know usually when we hear the phrase ignorance is bliss, yeah. it's usually in the negative, but sometimes it's actually good. Ignorance is actually good. Because I thought so little about television and because in my mind it was not the medium for me, I didn't mm -hmm. take it seriously. And so when I started doing TV, I was always me. 
I wasn't good. right. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't trying to be to Someone imitate else. other. This isn't gonna happen for me anyway. Who cares? <laughs> I'm just gonna get up here and sling these hot takes and just leave it at that. <laughs> I just didn't take myself or it too seriously. And it turns out it weirdly worked. And because of my level of comfort, people were very surprised that this was something that I didn't do from the beginning. And what really changed my mind, to be totally candid in, in terms of going full throttle for a TV career, was money. And I remember I was reading the New York papers and Matt Lauer had just signed a contract. And I believe they were paying him $25 million a year. Wow. And I said, wait, what? How much? <laughs> How much? I was like, that's possible in television? I knew the money was good. And I was mm. aware that there were people at ESPN making a lot of money. And one day I had done a week of television in New York for ESPN and a check for $3,500 just showed up. And I was like, wait a minute, I did a total of maybe 40 minutes of television in that's one week good. and I got 3,500 bucks. I was like, I'm tripping, sign me up, right? <laughs> After that, I was like, listen, to be very realistic, there's a ceiling that they'll pay a writer. There is not a ceiling to what you can make in television. The fact that kind of generational wealth was possible in television mm. made me take it a whole lot more seriously. Yeah. And then I saw the power of television compared to writing. I could certainly write in a thousand word article, but the power of oh. the 30 seconds lives much differently uh, than it does as, as a writer. Today, from where you were 17 years old to now, you see social media, Instagram, Twitter, all these social media platforms. And obviously, you know how powerful words are, mm -hmm. but I just feel like people don't really understand how powerful they are now when you write something. I go to my social media and I can see millions of negative comments about myself, my family, sometimes yeah. my partner. And it's not great. I don't really take them seriously, but subconsciously, they're going into my brain and it's hard. What would you tell people like that don't really understand, you know, say ne something negative about someone that can really affect someone's I guess, life moving forward. I understand. And, and from that standpoint, I'm grateful that I'm a bit of a technology immigrant. Like, I remember life before we had cell phones yeah. and, and before we had social media. And because it was something I didn't start until much later in my professional life, until I was well into my 30s, I'm grateful I've had that distance. And so it gives me a different perspective on it. I feel so much empathy for athletes because in real time, you are finding out how people feel about how you perform, so what you hard. said. And it sucks. I used to tell people to have a, a thick skin, but I stopped doing that because I feel like that's empowering the people to do it. What I would say to them is that you can't let somebody else tell you who you are. These people do not know you yeah. at all. What I would also tell them is that you can't respect the opinions of people who do not even have enough respect for themselves to understand how to carry themselves on that kind of platform. You have to give yourself some level of distance from it and remind yourself these people don't know me. I did a show the other day with Jay and um, he goes, Any, anytime you criticize someone, you have to be in their life for one day. If you criticize an athlete, you have to go out in the NFL field or you have to play a game of basketball and deal with the media and deal with the critics. And it was like, it was so good because I wouldn't think it. twice they could before do doing it. anything like they that. They can never be in your shoes and take, and take what you've taken. There was just a different code in journalism than I think there is now. I was raised in this profession under the ethic of don't write something or say something about an athlete that you can't say to their face. And as long as I follow that principle, trust me, it it alleviates so much drama. Now, that doesn't mean I'm still not gonna criticize yeah, you, definitely. but the criticisms will not be personal. Me carrying that idea and that principle has certainly kept me accountable and always helped me understand in real time the power of what I'm saying. Well, this is the first time I've sat down with a journalist and got to know how they operate or what their intentions are. My personal experience, like I thought that all journalists were just out to get me. That's how <laughs> I felt, but now so I've finally sat down with 
probably the journalist and now I'm respecting it a bit more because I don't think every journalist feels that same way. Sometimes I see the stuff that's written about me and it's, it's really hurtful. Yeah. And it's just been really hard to deal with and it's you lose motivation, my self-worth. I feel like I'm not worth as much as I was the day before and it's hurtful, but now I'm starting to like journalists again. <laughs> Look at that. Uh-oh. I think the best a journalist can promise you is I can't give you a favor, but I can give you fairness. Right. That's that's, that's all I'm asking for. Yeah. So I guess how's the freedom now that, you know, outside of ESPN, how's that allowed you to express yourself more? I get to do cool things like this. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> and cool. I don't have to send 50 emails explaining why I'm doing it or getting permission from anybody. This part of my career is not, it's a season I never expected to go through. It's entrepreneurship. It's me basically being my own company. Yep. And for it's the exciting. first it's exciting and also terrifying mm -hmm. as somebody who hates math. It's very, <laughs> like, now I got to pay people. I'm like, what? This is, I got to come up with a budget? This is ridiculous. But I do love the fact that on any given day, the only person I have to ask permission is me. It's exciting because I've gotten to do so many different things. Mm -hmm. So... Being in these different entertainment spaces has really fed my creative spirit. So that part, I just really enjoy. Amazing. Um, so, you know, you have some projects going on. Everything's going to be all white and your upcoming Colin Kaepernick documentary mm -hmm. in collaboration with Spike Lee. Has that continued to motivate you? You've got all these cool things happening. It, it does. And, you know, you mentioned doing uh, uh, Colin's documentary. Mm. Everybody saw what he went through. Yep. Everybody hijacked his narrative to be a part of, of a project where he can tell his story, where it's his words, where we're learning directly from him what happened, what it was like, how he felt, where he is now. Mm -hmm. Like, it's been truly phenomenal. And to be executive producing it and learning at the foot of somebody like Spike Lee, who is one of the most creative visionaries mm -hmm. that film has ever seen, it has been a, a really amazing experience. And it taught me a lot, not just about filmmaking and storytelling, but also about the danger of false narratives. Mm. And I can't wait for everybody to see it, especially after everything that this whole world went through in, in 2020 after the death of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people understood his message then. And they were like, oh, he was right. Yeah, he's always been right. And mm -hmm. I think he, when this documentary airs, there's a lot of people who owe him an apology. And there's a lot of people who need to be embarrassed that this man lost his entire career just for standing, standing up for standing for something he believed in. For standing in. up for something that he believed in, something that shouldn't be a wild concept. We shouldn't have people being murdered by the people who are in charge of protecting us. So on the, on that, what sort of change do, do you want as a result of it? Mostly, I'm happy with the way that it's empowered athletes because mm -hmm. when I first uh, started covering sports professionally, it was a different time. And a lot of athletes, they wanted to be globally marketed. They didn't want any part of being a voice. And that has totally changed because yep of what Colin has done. I mean, everybody doesn't have to take on that role. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm a big believer in doing what you can where you are. But I do think that there are athletes who have been really inspired by it to use their platforms for something beyond just promoting themselves, promoting their sport, to let people understand the other problems that are happening in Definitely. the world. One of the biggest reasons I gravitated toward writing about sports, besides loving competition and the results and athletes and players and all mm -hmm. the normal stuff, Sports is one of the few things we still do together. It's one of the few things, right? And because of that very special position that sports is in, it allows people to think about world issues differently when their favorite athlete says, hey, this is a problem. Mm -hmm. And they might not listen to a politician, they might not listen to a community member, their mayor, but they might listen to you. 
So tennis is a crazy sport as in like, you could win a tournament and then you have to travel 10 hours to go to the next place, you play the next day. You know, I made finals at Wimbledon and then the next week I have another tournament. It's like, I didn't even reflect on what I achieved. I'm the same as you, I, I have big imposter syndrome. The fact that I'm sitting here doing this, meeting these amazing people, athletes, journalists, it's, it's really surreal for me because I came from Canberra, Australia. I, you know, I have to like pinch myself all the time, but that's what I think now, being injured, it's just been amazing to actually sit and reflect. And I guess for you, like your life would be so fast paced. Yeah. So I'm assuming now you're actually good to just take a breather. And I totally understand what you mean. In those spaces of reflection, you have to give yourself some credit. To be a professional athlete, there's such a small percentage of people that get to do that. Mm. And while I know that you're grateful for that, it wasn't something that just happened because the professional athlete God decided to tap you. It's because you actually work to do it. Mm. I'm learning now to actually have more of a respect and acknowledgement of the hard work I had to put in to get to to the point where I could sit down with somebody like you. Well, I can already tell by sitting here, you're real, you're, you're authentic. So <laughs> I, I can, try to I can definitely tell why they wanted you on TV most of the time. But we'll get a bit deeper here. In, in your memoir, you discuss some of the addiction that you dealt with within your family and how have you utilized that and used that as motivation or and how has it helped you on your journey? Now, I, I wonder if this is the case for you as somebody who grew up in challenging economic circumstances, yep. we both did, is that it gives you perspective. Definitely. Right? And then I told people, especially when I've, as I've gone through various controversies and, and personal career challenges, mm. as, quote, bad as that might have been, it is nothing compared to having to witness your mother go through an addiction. Yep. Right? And so... I'm, it, it was tough, you know, it really was. But the lessons I carried from it about not just person perseverance and, and will and all those kinds of mm -hmm. things, mostly I'm grateful for the perspective that it gave me because later on when I face both personal and career challenges, I think about those days often Definitely. and what they were like and the pain of seeing my mother go through that, the pain of having to experience that and not have a normal childhood and feel like in many ways my childhood was taken from me in some regards because I had to behave like an adult mm -hmm. to weather what was happening. It made me have a much tougher skin. And in some ways that's good and that's bad because it's good in the sense that it equips you to face the world's challenges, but it's bad because the one thing I still continue to struggle with is showing vulnerability. Yep. And even to some degree, understanding how to process my emotions in, in real time. And so the trauma and the scars were certainly there, mm. but the lessons I think definitely equipped me for things that I would face later in life. My mom was pretty much, she's been sick my entire kind of my career. And I watched her have seizures right next to me when I was a young kid. And I guess no matter what we achieve in a sense, no matter, you know, I final a Wimbledon or I do some amazing things. And I kind of always, you know, one text message like from my mom or from one of my family members saying, your mom's not doing well, it just brings me back down to earth. And I feel like, you know, having those experiences, it's good in a way, because it's just like never makes you too happy or too arrogant with what you achieve. It kind of just humbles you and, and brings you down to earth. So I think that's a big one for me, like having these traumatic events when I was younger, they're there, the scars are definitely there, but I guess I kind of just use it as motivation to keep going. And she's still here at the moment, her health's not great. She's still watching me, you know, do this. And when this, you know, airs, she's gonna be, she's definitely gonna. Well, and that, and it, my mother and I, we had a conversation about that where, you know, I told her, I wouldn't change anything. And it was a hard moment only in the sense because she changed everything. Because she was like, the lessons that you may have taken away from that, even if they're good, you shouldn't have had to go through that to get them. Mm -hmm. I wish I would have given you a different experience. But I understand that because like she would have totally taken addiction away if she could have. Whereas I look at it 
as seeing the things that I gained from having yep. to come up that way. You know, there are lessons that I think very much fueled my success because it made me that much more driven. Definitely. And I didn't want her to go through that in vain. Like, I know what you went through, a horrible addiction, mm -hmm. surviving sexual abuse, all of those things. And as awful as they were, I wanted you to see how the generational trauma of that was broken. So you've had the effortless ability to step in the spotlight and address what needs to be said. So you are good trouble. So that's why you're on the show, you fit perfectly and you inspire so many people. So how do you plan on continuing to embody that and make, making sure that you expand this space for others? So that's the person I always think about whenever I make the decision to speak on something. I don't think about how it could amplify me or what it could do for me. I think about the person who is voiceless. I think about the person who can't speak to what I'm speaking to, who can't say what I can say, who doesn't have the ability, who may not have the platform, who may not even feel empowered enough to say it. That's why I'm very careful and strategic about what I speak about and, and what I say. Look, I know that celebrities have a lot of power and reach, but it's really the people who are on the ground. We need to use our megaphone to support those who are in grassroots organizations, who are knocking on people's doors every day, who are doing food drives and clothing drives, who are helping unhoused people, who are trying to tear down these systems that are dehumanizing us. Like, we need to use our megaphone to amplify and bring support to them. And so that's what I also hope to do by getting into good trouble. So I guess, um, what would you tell the next generation of women looking to become sports journalists and, and cultural commentators? I would tell them to really brace themselves for the fact that people are gonna see what you aren't before they see what you are. There's mm. still a lot of stereotypes that women in journalism, uh, sports journalism in particular, face about our knowledge. Some people have stereotyped us. They act as if somehow all of our sports knowledge came directly from the genitalia we have. And that's not exactly how that <laughs> works because there's plenty of, uh, of sports writers and sports commentators I've worked with that I never played, nothing. As always, focus on the craft. You can't build a brand if you don't have a product. Mm. The product is you investing in your craft, learning how to be the best on air, learning how to be the best writer, the best interviewer, the best at developing sources, the best at building relationships mm -hmm. with the people that you cover. That's the part you should be invested in. And the other things, the social media attention, the opportunity to do cool things, win cool awards, that will come as a result of the work that you put in. So like for me, earlier in my career, I was authentic, but then I got negative press for it and that kind of made me try and fit in a bit too much and I kind of lost myself a bit. How would you advise others to pursue their dreams but being authentic as well, even if they get like shut out millions of times? I think it takes a while for maybe some of us to understand is that there's only one you. Mm -hmm. See, I can't be you because you're already taken. You can't be me because I'm already taken. Mm -hmm. You is enough. Understanding that you are enough and understanding that you bring something unique that no one else does will allow you to hold on to that authenticity and really see it as a value and not see it as something that's a detriment. And the, the other thing I would say too is in whatever space you go into it, know who you are before you come through the door. Don't let the place change who you are. And unfortunately, I, I see this happen a lot, and I'm sure you've seen it too, is that people get to certain positions and they become a different person. You got to know and be rooted in your identity mm -hmm. before you go into your success. Otherwise, the success will change who you are. Thanks for coming on. Um, you know, good trouble on another episode. And I really appreciate you inspiring everyone out there trying to become a journalist or just be themselves. So it was uh, truly an honor. I have always wanted to know this. Okay. How difficult is it to break a tennis racket? 
Oh, that's an easy one. It's actually really easy. Really? It's really easy. It's not as hard as you think. I've wondered that. I was like, you make it look so effortless. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's <a lot> of <laughs>